really, I mean, if you're going to punch an industry in the face, you should really punch the arts because we know how to do this. I had a bit of a shout at a public servant recently who was telling me that what the arts really needs to do is pivot. And I said, darling, the arts can not only pivot, they can give you a step ball change and a jazz hand at the same time. We pivot all fucking day, okay? (laughs) And we can do it with style, in heels, backwards. This is House Lights Up. Honest conversations with professional performing arts workers about how they make working in the arts work for them. We spend a lot of time here on House Lights Up talking about the particular challenges of working in the arts and entertainment industries. The impact of those challenges on the mental health and well-being of arts workers can be so acute that in 2017, Arts Centre Melbourne launched the Arts Wellbeing Collective. This initiative actively works to empower and upskill organisations and individuals to address the problematic features of the sector, like high-pressure environments, constant deadlines, touring and the prevailing competitive tone of the industry. The agenda was full to bursting. Then, in March 2020, the live performance industry, with all of its inherent challenges, was flipped completely on its head. Now, the National Cabinet made the following decisions to put a ban on gatherings of 100 or greater, and that is effective now, as of today. The Australian Government's mid-March ban on non-essential public gatherings effectively cancelled the nation's live performance industry indefinitely. At the time of recording this podcast, this ban has been in place for more than three months. It's very difficult to see all your friends who were in work suddenly be not in work, people who are about to start working, myself included. That's not happening anymore. It's being postponed. You know, there's a sense of, it was just like a communal sense of hopelessness as everyone tries to trudge through this place at the moment. It was only about a couple of weeks ago that I, I had a moment and I just, I broke down and I cried and I, it's almost like I grieved what had just happened and it had all hit me. I mean, I got told on Friday the 13th, uh, we got no work till September. And you go, ah, shit. We're both pretty much unemployed and have been since March when all of our work fell over. We've fallen through the JobKeeper cracks as well. That was quite overwhelming and kind of scary. It was like, damn, man, I haven't ever seen the world in the grips of something like this before and it looks like this is going to hit us soon. One of the things that I have seen is, is people's ability to respond to whatever they're given to respond to the challenge of all work being withdrawn. I've been really amazed by how many clients have actually snatched some degree of victory from the jaws of defeat. On Friday the 13th of March, co-founder of the Australian Road Crew Association, Ian Peel, and his colleagues were told they had no work for at least six months. It's like it was in April the 1st. You know, because everyone would have been laughing, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as it turns out, yeah, the mass gatherings is out the window. It just happens to be one of those viruses. You've got to be careful. So, yes, this is all well and good. There's a lot of people that have, have just done their ass with money. For Christina D'Agostino, the shutdown brought an abrupt end to her first resident choreographer job with Shrek the Musical. It was a really beautiful um, introduction to that side of our world and I was thoroughly enjoying it 
and then it just finished. The shutdown came just after Shrek had opened in Melbourne. We had been running for about four weeks, but I think it was probably around the three-week mark that there was a bit of uncertainty. There was obviously the news and, and everything around us was getting quite heightened and and I, I found myself especially in that position as resident choreographer to just try and, you know, remain positive, keep active and, and act as though nothing was changing. Like we were still producing a beautiful show. There were audiences coming along. But um, it did feel like all of a sudden it just stopped. When the plug was eventually pulled on live performance, what Christina observed was the company's immense capacity for solidarity. I found it so impressive how everybody was just all hands on deck and really unified. And that for me, I was like, oh, you know what? We are really lucky to do what we do. I found from the production team to the crew to the, you know, management, everybody. It was so wonderful. As a company, we were so united. But for Christina, when the shock wore off and the rallying subsided, that early positivity turned to sorrow. It's almost like I grieved what had just happened and it had all hit me because I was really just trying to go, okay, all right, um, compute, move forward. But I I will admit it it did hit me and I, I was really sad about what had happened to so many of us in industry and just how differently it is affecting everybody. So because of that too, I think it's it's hard to navigate this time. I'm actually finding it more difficult now, not then. Stage performer Dion Zanotto has likewise found the hardest part of the shutdown has been in the months after the initial shock. Here she tells me of her experience in June as restrictions in Victoria began to lift. Now, Everyone around me is going back to work to some sense of normality, whatever whatever that new normal is, people are going back to it. But we aren't. We are still, you know, not, not sure of when theatre will go back, possibly the end of the year. I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that Frozen opens. I'm, you know, crossing everything for them. So I'm finding it more difficult now. I think when everyone was sort of all together and everyone was in their little ISO bubble and we're all just dealing with it. It was like, okay, now we're doing this. Now we're just taking all the steps. But now that you you drive past the cafes, people are in there, people are shopping, people are doing things that they normally do, but we aren't. And that feels odd. It feels wrong. <laughs> it feels, but I also understand. I mean, I get it. We can't have, you know, 2000 people in a space right now. So it's it's been it that that this is the part that I'm finding tricky now I think. For musician Susan Eldridge, the timing of the shutdown couldn't have been worse. So um I left to go freelance this year and boy was that interesting. So um I did have quite a lot of work lined up and that all fell through and my wife also had 18 months worth of conducting work wiped off the books in the space of a week. We'd been working hard for the last two years, knowing that this year was the year I was going to likely be going freelance and for her conducting work, building to, you know, better work. And um, this was kind of the first year that things were really solid financially for us, both freelance and also that the quality of the work we were doing and the people we were working for was really where we wanted to be. So there was quite a bit of grief went on around that. Hip-hop artist Mantra's first thoughts were genuine fear about the public health ramifications. No one really knew what was going to happen in Australia in terms of the fallout of COVID. 
And so when they brought in kind of pretty prompt lockdown measures and stuff, I was kind of like, yo, bring it on. Even though I didn't know what that would mean for me personally, I was just like, yeah, well, let's do it. Like, we just need to work together to make sure that this doesn't hit us like it's hitting some of these other countries. And so that was my first focus. But then very shortly after that, I was like, oh, hang on. (laughs) If mass gatherings are not possible and schools are closing, that's all of my income (laughs) is completely cancelled until further notice. So I, I, I went very quickly from like being this like, concerned social citizen to being like, oh shit, I don't know if I'm going to have any money ever again. Like, (laughs) and then, so yeah, I went into kind of panic mode and I just kind of started taking every measure I could to protect what income I had to figure out alternate ways of generating income, uh, ways of protecting kind of some of the programs or the jobs that I was already involved in. And, And thankfully a lot of them were able to pivot and become online kind of options or whatever. Mantra tells me that he saw a lot of empathy and compassion amongst creative workers during the initial shutdown period. But something else that struck him was a perverse, almost competitive pressure spread mainly via social media by people who seemed to be viewing the shutdown as an opportunity for one-upmanship. I just hated this, this prevailing sentiment that was coming out of some creative people which was like, yo, if you're not using this time to like, you know, develop a new skill or to learn a new thing or to increase your knowledge or to get your side hustle started, then, you know, there was literally memes going out like that. And it was like, if you don't do all these things while you're, while you're in lockdown, then you didn't lack the time before you lacked the discipline and, and stuff like that. And I'm just like, what kind of bullshit is that? Like what kind of self-serving bullshit is that? that you're going to come and aggressively challenge a person to utilize their time in lockdown to to build their brand or build their practice or whatever. It's like what kind of self-respecting creative person thinks that the way to get creative outcomes and, and projects or, or ideas out of people is to just like berate them for not doing enough. But further to that, I just think it's really, really disrespectful to be confronting anyone about how they're choosing to respond to a literally unprecedented event. Like you don't know what people's circumstances are. And so how they're dealing with this is completely personal to them and has nothing to do with you. Also, let's not forget there's hundreds of thousands of people dying all over the world. And some people actually give a real personal shit about that. Uh, And that's not a nice thing to be dealing with for these people. Um, so, so the idea of like, use your time better, you know, and get your side hustle started. It's like, yo, you start your side hustle, let other people deal with their own lives. It was just completely naive and ignorant. I thought. Amid the uncertainty for the future of live performance and the anxiety brought about by the coronavirus crisis more generally, my interviewees shared with me some stories of remarkable adaptability and compassion. I'm watching some colleagues responding incredibly. All of our work is gone for the time being. And I'm watching how some colleagues are really standing up and grabbing other opportunities 
and finding joy in completely new things that they may not have considered a year ago. There have been people producing shows online. There's, you know, a show's about to open next week that's filmed in four different rooms in a house and edited on the fly. Like, it's like the stuff that has come out of this is, is, is amazing. I was extremely impressed with my peers and contemporaries in creative industries who were able to just immediately adapt their way of thinking, their way of working to not only keep themselves in some kind of position of employment, but also to be able to look out for each other. Like I think a lot of people in creative industries were, were looking out for each other and keeping each other in work and keeping each other's spirits up. I'm just mad impressed at how clever we've all been and how empathetic everybody's being and, and how resilient people are being. Monica Davidson runs Creative Plus Business a coaching resource helping creatives navigate the practicalities of running a freelance business. Monica tells me her team has been really busy during the COVID crisis. I prepare myself before I walk into client meetings for the worst and it's really quite extraordinary how many are figuring out how to survive. You know, my, my heart sings at in a weird way at just this incredible care that we are taking with each other you know, I mean, I am still wondering when the farmers are going to put on a concert for us. No, because I think it's time. Susan Eldridge is working to reimagine classical music training and practice. Susan and her conductor wife, Ingrid, have very consciously approached the pandemic situation from the perspective of abundance. Perhaps not an abundance of employment, but certainly an abundance of time and of need. What do people need? What does our audience need from us right now? And how can we take the gift of this time when people are thinking more radically about what's possible to advance the conversations in the two areas of work that we do? So we've both just been pumping out content. Anything that has our name attached to it is originated from us. It's for you for free to help unlock you musically in your life and in your career. Among Susan's and Ingrid's output have been webinars and workshops for conductors tackling questions the pandemic has thrown up about rehearsal. How does an orchestra rehearse during lockdown and to what end? And how does a conductor facilitate that? Also a podcast series about innovation in music education. And Susan has even put together an online summit on the topic of reimagining musician training. For Susan, the turmoil brings with it limitless new possibilities. So we're just trying to remain confident that people are now much more open to our ideas about change and transformation than they were maybe six months ago. And so if we can, you know, keep lentils in the cupboard, uh, keep the kids in school shoes, if we can just, we can stay calm and kind and loving to each other in our community, that things are going to be okay. And that's not from a woo-woo, if I think of a Lamborghini, a Lamborghini will magically come in my life kind of way, but just in a very... It's strategically about the work we do is needed, it has value, and we've got to remain committed. If we haven't got skin in the game, we won't get the work when the work comes back. Each arts worker living through this crisis will emerge on the other side with their own unique and valuable experience. So at this stage, what have we learned about the industry and its people? Here's stage performer Anne Wood. There's been a lot of stuff exposed about where we sit in the minds of the government, where we sit in the minds of some producers, some companies. So 
I would love to think that there'll be something positive that comes out of all of this, that we're able to move forward acting on this understanding. And I wonder whether this is a great time for us to actually be looking at the way we view ourselves within the industry and maybe trying to make some changes at the very bedrock of what the performing arts is all about, what our values are, how we value ourselves within the industry, whether we do really buy into the pictures of that we are lucky to be working in this industry, in a job that we love. As long as we cling on to those ideas, I think there's always the opportunity for us to not be taken seriously by the wider community. Monica Davidson is likewise concerned about what she sees as a general disregard of the value of creative practice. The whole experience, I think, is highlighting the systemic devaluing of creative practice that's happening from when you're in mid, mid-high mid school and you have to choose between art and small business all the way through to a prime minister who apparently thinks that television doesn't make jobs and that the things that people are watching on TV are just put in the box by magic fairies. That's something that's probably upsetting people and impacting on people's well-being in a way more than the virus. Psychologist Chris Cheers says that while it might not be news within the sector, the COVID crisis has really exposed the precariousness of funding for independence. The independent to middle sector, I think, have been the hardest hit in many ways because I think it's made very clear that that their funding is not long term, if really from anywhere, and it's something that has to continue to be fought for every year, if not every month, or it's funded by you know, the general public or by artists or kind of working for free. And I think this has really shown that that industry is was on such a fragile kind of space to to survive already. And now a lot of that even minimal funding is just gone. Pretty much all of the arts workers I spoke to told me that the coronavirus crisis is and should be a time for soul searching a time to ask difficult questions and find new and better ways of doing things. As Chris Cheers points out, the crisis has shown that huge systemic changes are possible and that should prompt new ideas about the way the arts could be funded. I think this has maybe got us to step back and go, these structures that aren't working can change. Money can be funded into completely different areas, millions, billions of dollars, you know, the government has put into different areas. It It is possible to change these structures. And obviously, unfortunately, it was in response to, a, you know, a global pandemic. But it often makes me think about, um, I guess, the way top tier is funded compared to the middle and independent tier. Um, when you step away and look at arts funding as a general, the arts is funded in Australia. It is. There's millions of dollars going into it. But I think the next step down is going, where is that money going? And are we getting bang for our buck in terms of excellent, new and vital kind of Australian artistic work across a range of different modalities? Susan Eldridge, too, takes heart from the forced innovation of recent months, which has seen performing arts organisations throwing themselves into online delivery some for the very first time. We have completely pivoted a a part of our business in the last two or three months and it's not been easy but it's been effective and our audience has come with us. So what else might we now address that we thought was too hard? 
like I would love for the opera companies and the orchestra companies to ask themselves, well, what are we now for? If we are not for lots of people making noise at lots of other people, which is like the traditional concert model, right? And accepting that that's no longer possible as well. And that's that's out of our control as much as we can carry the battle cry, of, but live music matters and we need to be in front of an audience. It's just, it's out of accepting it's out of our control and asking ourselves, well, what might we be for now? How might our music change our community in other ways? And when the next pandemic comes or when the next massive disruption comes, which it will, how is our business model and our output resistant to these big disruptions? How are we so important to our community that we will be fine when the next change happens? According to Susan, who is herself an orchestral musician, this innovation is sorely needed in her corner of the industry, where a traditional devotion to the accepted canon of music and standard modes of presentation threatens the relevance of the art form. Like, for instance, I was in Adelaide last year. We were in this old bookshop and we pulled out the season catalogue for an orchestra that was from 1977. It was in this gorgeous old bookshop in a little house in Adelaide and we played um, musical bingo and we were able to name every almost every piece they were playing that year and it was 80% the same content that's being played this year. So, I, yeah, I just, you know, I hope that we... What we learn is that our audience must be the primary focus of our work and whether that work is performance or it's education or it's outreach or it's therapy or whatever it is we do, but we, we must be for someone. There must be a who and there hasn't been a who really clearly in our world. So that's what I'm hoping, uh, that the connection is what comes out of this, how do we retain that. This soul-searching is happening at the level of individuals as well. Psychologist Chris Cheers has seen many clients, especially those who have missed out on emergency funding and are not eligible for government support, questioning their future in the industry. And some of the clients I see, it's this real sense now of, you know, I sometimes talk about your arts career being, it's like a bad boyfriend, that it's, it, it doesn't treat you well and it it's just not there for you. Uh, when you need it and it's just like just hard but you stay in it because you love it and then this is almost like corona's like your bad boyfriend's gone to europe for three months and i think now is a bit of a process where that bad boyfriend is coming back and people are going do i really want to do this (laughs) this this thing that was so hard this art thing that's so challenging do i want to do this again or is there other people out there for me is there other relationships where i might like to put my energy towards and i think it's it's okay that some people are in that spot it's okay to question the arts it's okay to question this is what you want to do um it's great if you're sure of it and you're fine and you're going to work through it no matter what and those people are pivoting and adapting and putting their you know 14 person stage work converting it to a one person instagram live feed great but I think it's okay to allow space for people that are questioning whether they want to do this again and go back into this again when they've had this moment to consider and reflect on it. For Anne Wood, the opportunity for individuals to reflect on their motivations and their place within the industry should be seized with both hands. I do feel this is an amazing time for everybody to really reflect on 
why we are attracted to the industry, why performers in particular are constantly held by society as being lucky to be working in this industry, and also why there is such a prevailing feeling that it is a hobby. I think even amongst the people who are performing, who know how hard it is, there's this sense that, oh, I'm, I mustn't complain and I'm, I'm so fortunate to be here. Whereas in actual fact, we're, we're a multi-billion dollar industry who employs many, many, many people and we deserve more. We deserve for the industry to be of the highest standard that it can be and taking care of its employees to the highest standard that it possibly can. And I feel, I feel like this time where the industry is not operating on any level is a great time for us to be reflecting on this and thinking about how we're going to move forward. Despite the uncertainty of the industry's immediate future, Monica Davidson takes heart from the resilience she's observed throughout the COVID crisis. Although I don't love the fact that we have such a resilient industry, we're resilient for a reason and none of it's good, we will prevail, we will figure it out. And if you're listening to this and thinking, well, I haven't been resilient, I've been shit, that's okay too. You know, I mean, I think if anything, we have to remind ourselves that it's okay to fall apart and it's okay to have bad days. And I've been very, you know, kind of clear about that, that I've been having lots of mental health days which require me to basically lie in bed and watch Nicholas Sparks movies and eat a lot of chocolate. Uh, and that's fine. Self-care is fine. So the arts industry is in the throes of a crisis that will forever change it. The future of arts organisations and individual creative workers will be informed by their experience of the COVID-19 shutdown for decades to come. How the systems and structures that shape the industry will change is at this stage anyone's guess. As is the length of time we will all be kept apart. But audiences will gather again eventually. And when they do, how will their experience of live performance have changed because of our ability to now imagine innovations and situations we previously never thought possible? Here's one last thought on the subject from stage performer Dion Zanotto. We haven't been in a large crowd for such a long time. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting. I, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to think about the first time I might be doing that and it, it will feel strange. It will feel new. Maybe it will be like a really great new experience that we all have been craving and that we all really, really need. I know when I'm in an audience and I'm watching and 2,000 people clapping or 2,000 people being really quiet, listening to a scene, it's so moving and you feel really a part of something. I, I look forward to audiences being able to feel a part of that again. Next time on House Lights Up. How can I be a performer and be a parent at the same time? It can be really hard to justify creating this space for a strictly artistic endeavour. If you are bleeding or dying, come find me. Otherwise, I need to practice. I threw my children into, you know, the path of my own ambition and then blamed the fact that I was a mother for not pursuing the things that I wanted to pursue. Kids want stability, but that doesn't mean you, that stability has to look like what the neighbours have. House Lights Up is a podcast by Ali Inlack, presented by the Arts Wellbeing Collective, an Arts Centre Melbourne initiative dedicated to promoting positive mental health and wellbeing in the performing arts. 
A very special thanks goes out to the eight brilliant arts workers who generously contributed their time, insight and personal experience to this project. Chris Cheers, Christina D'Agostino, Monica Davidson, Susan Eldridge, Ian Peel, Rob Tremlett, a.k.a. Mantra, Anne Wood and Dion Zanotto. For more information, head to the Arts Wellbeing Collective website at artswellbeingcollective.com.au. 